Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 1. Generally speaking, my intention for every episode of Into the Word is to read and explain one full chapter of the Bible in 15 to 20 minutes or less. On days like today, when we're starting something new, we'll give ourselves a few extra minutes to cover basic introduction and orientation. The Gospel of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and it was given that position largely because for the first 1,500 years of church history, pretty much everyone assumed that Matthew was the first of the four Gospels to be written. However, not many people today hold to that position. The consensus of the church in the last 500 years has shifted toward the idea that Mark was written first and that Matthew and Luke used Mark and added content according to their own specific reasons for writing. D.A. Carson, for example, puts it this way. He says, Some literary dependence is self-evident. It seems easiest to support the view that Matthew and Luke both depend on Mark rather than vice versa, largely because Matthew and Mark frequently agree against Luke. And Mark and Luke frequently agree against Matthew. But Matthew and Luke seldom agree against Mark, closed quote. So basically, Carson is saying there that it, it looks like Matthew and Luke both used Mark, but it doesn't look like they had access to each other's work. The unique things that they add are often not the same. So if that basic understanding is correct, and it does seem like a reasonable hypothesis, then it is probably best to assume that Mark wrote around A.D. 65, having interviewed the Apostle Peter in prison and after having spent several years as his personal secretary. Matthew and Luke then, shortly thereafter, used Mark as a source and expanded upon his work wherever they thought it helpful and appropriate to do so. Luke says that he interviewed many different people. Church history actually suggests that Mary the mother of Luke was a major source for Luke's gospel, which is why you get more of the classic birth narratives in Luke's gospel, whereas Matthew actually doesn't tell us a great deal about the nativity proper. Matthew, of course, as one of the 12 disciples, was able to rely more on his own personal memories and experiences, and he chose to include a large number of teaching units, which Mark, for whatever reason, did not feel the need to include. In fact, for that very reason, Matthew is sometimes called the teacher's gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a great deal in common, which is why they're often referred to as the synoptic gospels. The word synoptic means to see together. You can talk about Matthew, Mark, and Luke as a unit. They're telling the same story in three slightly different ways or from three slightly different perspectives. Now, that being said, Matthew does seem to have a couple of specific emphases. Mark and Luke touch on all these things, but Matthew seems to put particular stress on a few things over and above that assigned by the others. Among these special emphases, scholars often mention five in particular. Number one, first of all, Matthew seems to be very interested in the fact that Jesus is the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament. There are over 50 Old Testament citations in Matthew, and he will 
frequently say things like, all this took place to fulfill what was said by the prophet so-and-so. Secondly, Matthew seems very interested in the relationship between Israel and the church. The rejection of Jesus by the nation of Israel and the embrace of Jesus by many supposed outsiders is a major emphasis in Matthew's gospel. Matthew makes it clear that the new Israel is made up of all people, Jew and Gentile, who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, Matthew puts a lot of stress on the royal identity of Jesus. Jesus is the king. He is Lord. Jesus is the son of David. That's very important for Matthew. Fourthly, Matthew is very interested in the function and role of the law. He is interested in how it anticipates Christ and how it is fulfilled in Christ and how it is interpreted by Christ. He is critical of the ritualism and formalism of the Pharisees, but he is also critical of what later theologians will come to call antinomianism, the idea that after Jesus there is no use or no purpose for the law. Matthew wouldn't go there, and he wouldn't want us to go there either. And then fifthly, Matthew is very interested in the church. He's the only gospel writer, actually, to even use the word church. Matthew is interested in the ongoing role of the disciples of Jesus on the earth during the great delay and before Christ's ultimate return. All right, with all that being said, let's actually get into the Gospel of Matthew. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, first verses are often very important, and they will give us a clue as to the author's purpose and intention for the work as a whole. Consider, for example, the first verse of Mark's gospel. Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That tells you Mark's purpose in writing. He is writing to convince the reader that Jesus is the Son of God. He spends his whole gospel trying to convince us of that, and therefore the climax of his gospel is when the Roman centurion, the last person you would ever expect to identify Jesus as the Son of God, points at Jesus on the cross at the very moment of his death and says, truly, this man was the Son of God, Mark 15, 39. So the first sentence and the climactic sentence in Mark's gospel tell us what the whole work is about. You see much the same thing in John's gospel. John 1.1, first verse of the gospel of John, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John says that Jesus, whom he identifies as the Word, was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is God, and at the same time, separate or distinct in some sense. So with God and God, wow, all of that is given to us in the very first verse of the gospel. That is what John is setting out to prove. The climax of John's gospel comes out of the mouth of doubting Thomas, of all people. After the resurrection of Jesus, he sees the marks on his hands and the wound in his side, and he says, my Lord and my God, John 20, verse 28. So again, The first sentence and the climactic sentence tell us what the gospel is all about. Matthew, likewise, makes his motivation clear. He wants to show us that Jesus is the son of David, the long-awaited Messiah and king of the world. 
He also wants us to know that Jesus is the true seed and son of Abraham, the one on whom all the promises of God will come to rest, and the one who will become the head and father of the new people of God. Charles Spurgeon says here about verse 1, This verse gives us a clue to the special drift of Matthew's gospel. He was moved of the Holy Spirit to write of our Lord Jesus Christ as king, the son of David. He is to be spoken of as especially reigning over the true seed of Abraham, hence he is called the son of Abraham, closed quote. So again, I think we're onto something here. The first verse is telling us a great deal about where Matthew intends to go. We'll pick up the story at verse two. Matthew is giving us Jesus' family tree. He's going all the way back to Abraham. He says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now let's just stop there for a second. I'm not sure if you remember that story. Matthew is telling us here that Jesus is related to Abraham up through Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, the story of Judah and Tamar is one of the weirdest and most unpleasant stories in all the Bible. The story of Judah is actually positioned in Genesis inside the Joseph story in order to provide contrast. While Joseph is running away from Potiphar's wife because of his virtue and faithfulness, Judah is sleeping with his daughter-in-law, whom he mistook for a prostitute. The point is that Jesus is descended from Abraham through the bad son. That's a surprise. That's not what we would expect. But that prepares us for themes of grace and mercy and election. Salvation in the Bible is never about who is best or brightest or oldest or most likely. Salvation is about grace and about God. Hallelujah. We pick up the story again in the middle of verse 3. We were talking about Judah being the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. All right, now let's pause there. Who, who is Ruth? Do you remember her? Ruth is a Moabitess. And the Old Testament says that no Moabite or Moabitess can enter the house of the Lord, Deuteronomy 23.3. And then what about Rahab? Rahab is another Gentile woman and a prostitute, according to Joshua chapter 2. So why is she in Jesus' family tree? Again, by the inclusion of these unexpected people, we're being prepared here for themes of mercy and for the surprising inclusion of the Gentiles in the kingdom of God. We jump back into the story halfway through verse 5. We were talking about Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, who is the wife of Uriah? Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba is the woman that David raped. Call it whatever you want, sexual assault, rape. He used power to take away another man's wife and to bring her into his bed. 
He then arranged to have her husband murdered when she got pregnant. Jesus is descended from David via that story. The initial child that David and Bathsheba conceived died, but then David married Bathsheba and they had Solomon and Jesus is descended from David via him. So again, that's not what we would expect. And again, we notice this is a very messy story. This is a sin story that Jesus has entered into. Verse 7, And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, was Jesus biologically related to Joseph? Answer, no. He was legally the son of Joseph. That is to say, he was adopted. Jesus was biologically related to Mary. He had human DNA, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and subsequently adopted by Joseph, adopted sons, had full legal rights in both Jewish and Roman culture. So Jesus was truly and legally the great, 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 he had some greats, grandson of David. Matthew is very eager to make that claim, and he believes that to be very significant. We can see that in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Clearly, Matthew wants us to notice and appreciate the significance of the number 14. He says there are 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon and 14 generations from Babylon to the birth of Jesus Christ. 14 obviously is important. So what does it mean? Most scholars assume that it refers to the numerical value of the name David in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the name David is spelled with three letters, three consonants. Delet, Wav, and Delet. Delet is the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Delet. That's four. Wav is the sixth letter. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Delet, Het, Wav. That's six. So Delet equals four. Wav equals six. Delet equals four again. So that all adds up to 14. Matthew is saying that everything about the family line of Jesus shouts out to us, this man is the son of David 
and the long-awaited king of the world. Verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, in those days and in that culture, an engagement was far more binding than it is in our culture today. A betrothal was a binding legal contract. Mary and Joseph were essentially married. They just hadn't yet had the ceremony or the wedding night. Mary was thus a virgin. When it became evident that she was with child, Joseph logically assumed that she must have had some kind of affair with someone in her village. He could have brought her up on serious legal charges, but being a just man, the Bible says he intended to divorce her quietly. Divorce was relatively common in those days, which is something that Jesus will address in his teaching at multiple points in this gospel. However, before that could happen, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and explained the unusual circumstances of Mary's pregnancy. The child she bore had been conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he has a very urgent and important mission, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, Matthew is very eager for us to understand that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. You'll hear that phrase again and again and again over the course of this gospel. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to End of the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. I'd love to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow right here for another episode of End of the Word. <music>